1: G'day. Welcome aboard the Riverboat Zero-G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1359, entitled "Decca g The <laughs> <Our laughs> podcast title is The Fabulous Riverpod. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And I kind of, that's our Bowie track for today, really. Um, mm-hmm. Hear me out. Uh, Sue Yorge did all those Bowie covers for Wes Anderson's life aquatic soundtrack back in 2004 but there are other tracks as well and Scott Walker did that 30th century man one which pretty much describes Mr Bowie I reckon but also British American singer musician Scott Walker whom Bowie cited as an influence upon his own work so yeah we're sort of waving Bowie over that I wanted something aquatic to play to reference Philip has a Farmer's River World book series, which we shall steam on downriver to later on. But first, welcome back, Megan.
0: Thank you, Rob. Happy to be back. And before we head down the river, we're going to head across the sea to Japan, and I'm going to cover a bit of a cult classic uh, Japanese murder mystery novel called The Decagon House Murders. Ooh. So, this one is a Japanese novel, as I mentioned, but been translated into English. It's a pretty fun and simple mystery. I found it very readable, and so I thought it would be great to chat through on the show today. I was interested in reading some classic Japanese fiction, and this one kind of dropped into my lap. It was first published in 1987 in Japan and the first English edition was published in 2015. Now, the one I have was published in December of 2020, so a second English edition by Pushkin Press. It's one of their imprints called Pushkin Vertigo. So they've done another really vibrant cover uh, edition of the Decagon House Murders, which is the one that I picked up. It's the first novel by the writer Yukito Ayatsuji and it has been translated by Ho Ling Wong. And now, this novel, the reason why it kind of got my interest in the beginning was it's in the spirit and style of the golden age of detective fiction novels and very specifically Agatha Christie, who I'm a big Christie fan. It's quite clearly influenced by And Then There Were None, which is one of Christie's most popular and famous novels, and it references this quite early on. It's a really self-referential novel. The characters in it are all, all mystery buffs, and they call out different kind of mystery tropes and story elements as they go through their own murder mystery as well. So since I love a it, I thought I'd give this one a try. <laughs> so a bit about the plot. We've got seven university students from a university mystery club. So they get together, they love talking about mysteries, reading and writing mysteries, and it's kind of their interest. Thought it was interesting. Uh, this book was originally written in the 80s, but especially lately with the resurgence of true crime podcasts, there's a lot of interest in true crime. I'm a bit of a true crime tragic as well. No, a, a, <laughs> I know everything I bring to the table has murder involved. Rob's getting a bit worried about me. Um, so I thought it was interesting that this is something that's been around, whereas their focus rather than being on this kind of true crime or true crime fiction that's happening lately, it's much more about the, got these golden age mystery novels. So. Anyway, we've got this mystery club and they're at a Japanese university and they travel to a deserted island off the coast of Japan, Tsunojima Island, and this is for a week-long trip. They're going to write, explore the island and unpack and think a bit more about what happened there months earlier, which was a grisly multiple murder. So they're returning to this scene. You know, it's all very inappropriate really so they're returning to the scene of this murder because they're kind of murder fanatics and uh they just want to you know relax and think about mysteries but perhaps (laughs) the murders are not over so that's our scene here we've got deserted island a bunch of hapless university students and uh gradually they start getting picked off one at a time
1: is there signposting Do they run into anybody along the way to the island that says, oh, you better not go there and, you know.
0: Oh yes, I think there's a little bit of a you know they're getting rowed over on you know the rickety rowboat, and the guys like, oh, you guys are brave to head back. Tragic, what happened there? You know that kind of thing. (laughs) Wonder what and you know we think X did it, but was it him? So yes, die there (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Bit of John C. Riley signposting for sure. Uh, There is also a side plot element in the novel set on the mainland, where a former Mystery Club member who's unaware of the events unfolding on the island is simultaneously unraveling the historic tragedy that has kind of embroiled the Mystery Club and its members as well. So you kind of get droop-fed little bits of information about that too, and we kind of as a reader start to wonder how these events might be impacting what's currently happening on the island and exactly what kind of uh, plot is afoot. So pretty stock standard mystery setting really. Um, Nothing wild there and that's kind of intentional in a way because this novel is classified as what they call a honkaku novel. So honkaku in Japanese means orthodox but it's also with the name of a sub-genre of Japanese mystery fiction, which utilizes the style, plotting, and the quote-unquote fair play clues of golden age detective fiction, as I mentioned earlier. So that golden age was around the 1920s and 1930s, and it often contains a kind of locked room mystery, and it's also known as a fair play mystery because of the fact that all the clues are given to the reader. So there's nothing obscured. It's very much about the reader going on the journey and trying to piece together the answer to the mystery and the reader could in theory solve the crime, even if it's a very fantastical, improbable setup. So that's kind of the uh, premise behind the Honkaku novel. When is it set, by the way? So this one is set in the 80s. Uh, I would have to Double check that. But, yeah, I think it was just set in the time that it was written. Oh, my so, God. Deep, <laughs> deeply historical. But it actually is now. <laughs> I know. Don't even. Uh, no, like, let's just yeah. go there. Let's not think about it. But um, so, yeah, what I found really interesting was Delving a little bit to prepare our segment uh, into the Japanese detective fiction and honkaku novel phenomena. So, as I mentioned, that subgenre in Japan itself was also very popular in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and the crime author Saburo Koga he defined it as a detective story that values the entertainment derived from pure logical reasoning. So, I thought you might like that, Rob. But yeah, it's very much about logic, clues, and letting the reader go on a journey where they can actually piece together things. So this book in particular, The Decagon House Murders, was said to help revive the genre again in the 80s, along with the work of Soji Shimada, who's another popular Honkaku novelist. And it was interesting because the resurgence of it, it was a shift from what had been happening in crime fiction in Japan. More and more they were around psychological kind of crime, uh, police procedurals and kind of noir fiction. So that's really what had become more popular. So it was this kind of throwback to different kind of golden age style of detective writing. And if you're not as familiar with the golden age of detective fiction, uh, you know, there's it's fairly international. As I mentioned, it's happening in Japan, but there's also some very popular French, American, and English examples of the genre. Uh, and it commonly involves eclectic cast of characters, wacky locked room scenarios, upper-class families, uh, secluded English countryside, and things like that. So we think Agatha Christie, Ellery Queen, John Dixon Carr, Gaston Leroux, and S.S. Van Dyne, and so on. So those are some examples of writers of that period. And they kind of, this era of fiction is characterized novelist Ronald Knox. He wrote the rules of play for this kind of story. And it was, it must have as its main interest the unravelling of a mystery, a mystery whose elements are clearly presented to the reader at an early stage in the proceedings and whose nature is such as to arouse curiosity, a curiosity which is gratified at the end. And Some key rules of this and the characteristics of this kind of fiction included things like the culprit must be mentioned early in the story, supernatural explanations are ruled out straight away, no more than one secret room or passage, no (laughs) long (laughs) scientific, which I thought was quite funny, they've called that out, no long scientific explanations Nothing solved by accident or by the detective's magical intuition. The detective cannot be the one to commit the crime. And twins and doubles are not allowed unless it's been properly set up. So those are just some examples. So kind of sets the scene of the kind of stories we're talking about. You're probably mostly familiar with Christie's work, but this is the kind of era of fiction that we're talking about. And the Honkaku novel really falls into this area as well but back to the novel at hand uh first we might play a little bit of a track as well uh on the throwback to agatha christie uh i've got a track from the murder on the orient express film that came out the kenneth Branagh version so i thought we might play a track from that and it is called the orient express suite zero g is fun as you were. That was the Orient Express Suite from the Murder on the Orient Express adaptation that Kenneth Branagh did, and the composer for that one is Patrick Doyle. So we played that because we're talking a little bit about the golden age of detective fiction and the Japanese offshoot of that genre called honkaku, because we are talking about the novel The Decagon House Murders. So unpacked a little bit of background about the type of fiction that we're talking about, But let's dig a little bit into my thoughts on the actual book and the story itself. So we have our cast of seven students. We've got LaRoe, Carr, Agatha, Ellery, Van Dean, Orxie, and Poe. And so you might notice their monikers are all taken from famous detective fiction and mystery writers. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of their little in-joke as part of the university club. And our setting is indeed we're on this deserted island and they're staying in this rickety Decagon house, which is where the title comes from. They've all arrived on this island to relax and do a bit of writing, but also poke and prod around in the mystery that happened earlier on the island and the murders that have already occurred and start to think a little bit about how it might be connected and who done it basically not to spoil any more of the story not all of them will make it off the island which is kind of to be expected of so course. So we're on The Deserted Island, very much an homage to And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. It doesn't waste any time getting to the action. It's a fairly short book. It's only about 220 pages or so, and it does read a bit like a game or a puzzle, like it's really feeding you nuggets of information that you think, oh, these might be relevant later. Let me log those away in the brain. So, like I said, I enjoyed it. I recommend it as a pretty good read for a mystery buff if you're looking for something to pass the time, maybe a great lockdown read as well for you, especially if you are big into like your Christie novels or things like that. I did become pretty invested in the theatrics of it all, the idea of, you know, people getting picked off one by one is always a fun premise and the kind of locked room mystery element as well. Uh, there's not a lot of character development. I mean, we've got our paper-thin, cut-out characters of the seven students, and it's pretty much like we're watching Cluedo pieces be moved around a board and wondering who might get killed next. And, and that's okay. You're not really meant to care about them any more than gradually eliminating them one by one from suspicion. And... Even though it can be a little bit hard to keep track of who is who because they're not very fleshed out, um, there are some small details peppered through that, you know, it's kind of inconsequential at the end of the day, to be honest. The writing style is very simple and plain. I'm not sure if the translation comes into play with that, but it's not a very, you know, Florida-inspired writing style. But I did look up and note uh, that hunkaku novels are generally, they highlight information over style. So it's not about the writing per se, it's more about the plotting and the clue elements that you're being drip-fed as you kind of go through the mystery. There are also some maps and diagrams that accompany the story, which is always fun. Yeah, so it helps you visualize the uh, Decagon house where the story takes place. And so there's an image there for you to kind of start to think about, okay, what's the room layout and that kind of thing. And that's a common trait in Honkaku novels as well, to help you as the reader solve the mystery. So it's not it's not plot or character driven. It's very much about the clues and it's very much about you kind of trying to figure out what's exactly going on. In terms of it
1: being set in the 80s, how much do they lean into
0: that? Not very much at all, really, because the setting is that kind of deserted island. Um, It's pretty much it's quite stripped back anyway. So we're talking very much like heating things with candles, like I don't think the fridge works. So it's it's more the island setting means that um, yeah. you, you know, there's, there's not much of a cultural element to it. You're right. The time, that's probably why I can't even identify precisely when it takes place because it's a very generic general setting because it's meant to be focused more on the mystery rather than a really distinct feeling of time and place. I mean, any more so than the deserted island being <laughs> a key character in itself as well uh the reveal so I was very satisfied by the resolution of the mystery I semi-guessed some of the solution but I did not guess it and I did enjoy I love the old let's explain how it was done so that was a really nice payoff and it really did kind of spark my interest in reading some other classic Japanese mysteries from the genre and I probably will seek them out because as someone who I've just read a lot of Christie I haven't even read very many of the other golden age writers either so it kind of opened a whole world of there's all these fun mystery stories out there to discover so if you're also someone who sounds a little bit interested in discovering more of this kind of novel um I've got a couple of recommendations that I found so some other Honkaku novels that you might enjoy reading The Honjin Murders by Seishi Yokomizo. I did actually already start reading this. It's set in the 1930s at an upper-class wedding at an inn, but the morning after, the happy couple are found dead. Of course. And we're not sure exactly (laughs) how or why. It's a snowy setting as well, so there's snow everywhere, and we have our detective who, you know, is kind of very much in the – template of Ellery Queen, Dixon Carr, Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie detective tropes. So he comes and tries to figure out the mystery. We've also got Tokyo Zodiac Murders by Soji Shimada. That was written in 1981. Man dies in a locked room, but his diary documents a plan to chop up his daughters, stepdaughters and nieces into parts. And then that becomes a reality as we find these bodies buried in different locations around Japan. Forty years later, two detectives have to come and solve the crime. So that's from the eighties. The first one, sorry, Honjin Murders, is from nineteen forty-six. So that's also very interesting. And the last recommendation that I found of a similar in similar genre is The Moe Island Puzzle by Alice Arisugawa, that came out in nineteen eighty-nine. And so we have three university students head to an island, sound familiar, uh, with Moai statues and they are seeking some diamond jewellery that can be found by decoding the clues hidden within the statues. But there's a storm afoot and the murders begin. So, again, these are the examples of the kind of classic mystery tropes that we're talking about. Yeah. But, yeah, this novel, The Decagon House Murders, I was like, wow, Japanese classic mystery in very enjoyable very much knows what it's doing in terms of the mystery genre and is very self-referential in that way, and I liked that. It, was, it wasn't it was trying to conceal the fact it was borrowing a lot from Christie's work and it kind of reveled in that. It's saying, I know you're a fan. I'm a fan too. I'm going to build this into the story. So I would recommend, I think, as someone who loves a basic, you know, detective story, very readable, short, quick, to the point, not drawn out. Um, Decagon House Murders can recommend. It's by Yukito Ayatsuji, and you can find English translations of it fairly easily. So, mm, okay. Oh, when was it written, by the way, Megan? I was. Yes, this was originally written in 1987. Oh, okay, and we didn't get translations until the first one came out in 2015. So it's kind of nice that we can discover some of this kind of classic literature, and I think you can find translations of a lot of these stories i've already looked up a couple of those others and you can find english translations like on kindle or to purchase
1: well i'm a, a big historical mystery fan um you know i've read i mean you know sherlock holmes and um uh oh, so many others that there's just you know uh, peter Ellis, Alice, peters um mm-hmm. you know all of these different places time and space etc etc uh but I haven't read too much actual Japanese mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mystery fiction. I mean, plenty of Chinese stuff, you know, the detective D ones and all that sort of stuff. But um, for for Japanese ones, only Laura Joe Rowland, who's uh, an American, uh, a Chinese American, Korean American. Uh, background author who does stuff set in the 17th century of a samurai detective.
0: Ah, yes, nice. So -hmm.
1: so this is an entirely new area of fiction you've explained to me and and very well. Thank you very much.
0: No worries. And that's what was exciting for me too. I had no idea there was all these golden age style novels written by Japanese authors in the time and place that yeah. you can now seek out. So, yeah, very excited to uh, Maybe – I'm very happy that I've shown you a new genre that you can explore too. Mm.
1: All right, speaking of exploring, we'll go on to our second – we're very bookish today, aren't we? We are. <laughs> our second uh, book-related theme, and this is River World, and it's by a group called Drawing Lessons and it's from their album Riverworld Universe, which basically explores various aspects of Philip Jose Farmer's Riverworld saga, which we will get onto after Riverworld.
0: This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero-G.
1: Indeed he does, meandering down the river there with Riverworld, and that's a track from Riverworld Universe by a group called Drawing Lessons, which I don't actually know much about. But I do know that it is drawing its lessons from Mm -hmm. Philip Jose Farmer's Riverworld saga of books. We're getting Mm -hmm. fairly literary today here on Zero G. And the Riverworld series is uh, one of the jewels in the crown of science fiction literature, I believe, Mm -hmm. partly because of its outrageous premise. (laughs) We will get to that in a moment. Philip Jose Farmer, January the 26th, 1918 through to February the 25th of 2009, Mm -hmm. a US-American science fiction and fantasy author. Now, this guy has done a lot of books, (laughs) and all of them are pretty much unique, but yet very familiar. Mm-hmm. So he wrote a book called The Lovers back in 1952, and it had this relationship between a puny human and an alien. He won I a Hugo Award for that, one nice. of one of three that he got. And so, you know, obviously he thought, I'll just go off and become a – A writer, didn't quite work out as well as he (laughs) might have to start with. He ended up becoming a technical writer, which is still pretty good as uh, writing out uh, defence contracts and so on, which does actually show in his writing. He's got a lot of technical background in Mm. his procedural. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a novel, O for the Flesh, that uh, actually contains bits and pieces of the inspiration for the Riverworld series. So his second Hugo Award winner was a pastiche of James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, and that was called Mm -hmm. Riders of the Purple Mm Wage. And he did a lot of pastiche stories, like he did a 1975 one called Venus on the Half Shell. Which uh, seemed to have been written by a character called Kilgore Trout, and if you're familiar with vonnegut's <laughs> novels,
0: mm-hmm, very much so, know that name. <laughs> he
1: did have a he did have permission from vonnegut to do that, <laughs> although he's quoted as saying later on, kind of regretted it, you know. So <laughs> uh, right. Anyway, in 2001, he got a World Fantasy Award for Life Achievement and the Science Fiction. Writers of America gave him their gong for being the 19th Grand Master in the same year. So this guy has some serious writing chops in the genre. His 1972 Hugo Award was for best novel for To Your Scattered Bodies Go, which is the first book in the long-running Riverworld saga. Now, to just round out a little bit of an exploration of his other work, he did The Wind Whales of Ishmael in 1971 which was kind of a sequel to Herman Melville's Moby Dick and it's set on another planet and in the future. And (laughs) yeah, he also did Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. He attacked that as well, doing the the other log of Phileas Fogg, and a barnstormer in Oz in 1982. So this is like uh, Dorothy Gale's a grown-up son who's a pilot, and he ends up flying into Oz by accident because, of course, he's got the family resonance to deal with. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. kind of get an idea of where some of his major ideas are coming from. He's yeah. Yeah. pulling them out of uh, of great fiction from the past. So mm. he did um, uh, biographies of Tarzan and Doc Savage.
0: I see. So he's, very, he's a literary fan and pulling yeah. some of these things into his work.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and those – those two biographies led into a big mixed universe series now just to to roll back here a, a pastiche is where you are taking uh, either the style or character or both from uh-huh. other artists it could be music it could be literature yep. any any Film, way. Yep. but you're not really mocking it yes so you're not doing yep. a parody you are you know you are holding it up to the light and celebrating it. And that's what he does. He's never looking down upon these things. So to me, that makes him a good fan writer. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, pastiche comes from uh, the Italian noun pasticcio, which is like uh, a pie filling mixed from diverse ingredients. (laughs) I didn't know that. That's
0: great. I love that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he is the pastiche's pastiche. Now, we've talked about Alan Moore and Kevin Neal's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen before and Kim Mm -hmm. Newman's Anno Dracula series, and there's any number of television series from Penny Dreadful to individual episodes of Doctor Who and Star Trek through to Warehouse 13, amongst others far too numerous to mention that do this kind of thing. And you could fairly Mm. comment that even older legendary cycles like The Matter of Britain uh, or even Homer's Iliad and the odyssey and not to mention some of shakespeare's work they've all got structural <laughs> elements elements of uh, pastiche within them too yep. but, but this guy is in a completely different league of his own and and as i said it's not that different from the aspirations and deep love of genre that drives good fan fiction i think mm. that he's more than adequately earned the right to do all of this stuff <laughs> so okay riverworld while it's a fictional planet and it's where this series is set. He wrote it between roughly, I mean, from the main books, 1971 through to some short stories that spun out in 1983. So we're talking about a a decade of books. The first one is To Your Scattered Bodies Go. Then there's The Fabulous Riverboat, The Dark Design. The Magic mm-hmm. Labyrinth and Gods of Riverworld. And then you've got a number of short stories that pop up in other sorts of formats and anthologies, including ones which are written by other writers who eventually got permission to do some stories in that universe.
0: The cycle continues. Of... Yes,
1: exactly, making a pastiche of the pastiche. Yep. yep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and none of those, by the way,
1: are are too distant photocopies, so it feels good mm. to read those too. All right, so I will give you the premise. I've set this up. It's called River World. It is what it says on the tin. It is Mm -hmm. one planet, not Earth, but it has been terraformed. So it's basically one single long river valley that goes across its entire surface, obviously crossing backwards and forwards in great loops and circles Mm -hmm. and so on. You can't travel from this river valley. The river itself is very, very deep. You can't climb Uh up the mountains that enclose each section of the valley because they're thousands of miles. Well, they're not. They're not miles long. I I should get. I get tricked out by the uh, the constantly shifting uh, measurements in in this series. But they're they're quite high and they're unclimbable. Mm. And if you did, you just end up in the next section of the river valley. Oh, okay. Yep. So, one fine day on this vast river with its double banks, of course, two banks Mm -hmm. on each side, Um, every human being who has ever lived over the age of 25 is resurrected.
0: Oh, my God. You think
1: about that and you just go, ah.
0: (laughs) That is a very interesting premise to kick off with. So Jose
1: Farmer is very good at this sort of idea and so he tells you the numbers which is 36 billion you know oh so God. it's a lot and they're over they the uh they're, sorry they're resurrected as in the bodies of 25 year olds so even if you died if you were 90 years old or 103 you come back mm-hmm. as as your 25 year old self any yep. any challenges you might have faced are uh, eliminated so if you okay. if you were born uh, blind or deaf—that's been taken out of the the mix. Uh, mm-hmm. The I can't remember what the earliest age of the tr- of the, of the people are, but it's not like toddlers and infants are not resurrected. They're actually yeah. got their own separate world called Garden. Oh world. gosh, okay. <laughs> that does not really feature in these sure. stories. So there you go. That's the premise, and mm-hmm. in your head you are immediately thinking, how does this all work? Yeah. And why and what happens to the people, and are they mixed in areas and race yeah. and religion and nations and age groups and all of that sort of stuff? And because that, that's a big question that you have right from the start, you appreciate the author because he answers all of those questions. Nice, you know, and that could take a book in itself, and it indeed does. <laughs> so let's have a crack here. Now, hmm. we're calling it a pastiche. Because there are so many characters in this from history, one of them is the great explorer Sir Richard Francis Burton, who many Ooh. people don't actually know about, but they know of his of the namesake, you know, like uh, Richard Burton the actor. This guy was an incredible character. Look him up on Wikipedia to start with. Uh, you know, he did things like he was the guy who translated the uh, the Kama Sutra. Uh, oh. he spent time in the Middle East and the Far East, and, and so many different places in Africa. And, you know, he was looking for the source of the Nile. Just the kind of swashbuckling, adventurous <laughs> character that you would, res- if you were resurrected, you might care to have him alongside of you.
0: Yeah, 25 year old, um, ready to leap into the action. Yeah. Sir Francis Richard Burton. Yeah. So uh,
1: I have a song here by Sarah Sharp and the Lousy Service. <laughs> which I'm sure has got something to do with being vindictive about hotels or something. And this is from an album called From the Padigueski Regrets, and it's an EP. And she's an indie songwriter, singer, and and, uh, uh, I think uh, she was born over in uh, the UK, and she does like pop songs with a bit of jazz and so on. So here we go. Sir Richard Francis Burton's Lament, mostly grinding an axe about uh, various activities and wrongs that were done to him, so he says, in Africa during his exploring career. Hi, this is Chris Thompson, the voice of humanity from the War of the Worlds musical. Come on, Triple R! Sir Richard Francis Burton's Lament, Sarah Sharp and the Lousy Service from the Padesky Regrets EP. I'm sure one river would not be as good as the next if it were the river on river world. Mm. Philip Jose farmers, magnificent. It's not a trilogy. It's not a quadrilogy. <laughs> there's so many books in this. Actually, there's about, uh, five, uh, four main books and uh, a book of other stories, but the other, mm. the other story book only has one river world story in it. And there's some other bits and pieces floating around on the river. As we were saying before, set on a terraformed world where there is a great river that loops and spirals around the entire planet and all of humanity have been resurrected. So this is like mm-hmm. from all time, always, basically everyone, <laughs> everyone there. And this is a pastiche, so the opportunity to use every character from history that yeah. you can possibly imagine, they all end up here. And Filippo Farmer takes great pleasure in introducing us to so many of them. There are some main ones, of course, the Sir Richard Francis Burton, Alice Hargraves, who you Mm -hmm. will know as Alice in Wonderland. Oh. The inspiration for that. Samuel Clemens, who you may know Mm -hmm. by his other name, Mark Twain. King John of England. Oh. Cyrano de Bergerac. Tom Mix at the movie Cowboy. Mozart, oh. Jack London, Lothar von Richthofen, which is Baron Manfred von Richthofen's brother, Hermann Goering, everybody. Actually, in one of the spinoff books, uh, Jesus. Oh, there
0: you go. <laughs> too. All 25. Mm, yes. <laughs> okay. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. I, I can go on there, but, you know, it's not just Homo sapiens either. There's uh, Neanderthals.
0: Oh, well, you well. did say everyone, so okay.
1: And an earlier race of uh, Titans too. Mm.
0: That is a lot to think about and flesh out in terms of world building and linking a story together. No wonder there's many, many novels. Does it all hang together? Because that's a lot. That's a big tackle. Like that's a lot
1: to include. Yes. Not everybody stays in the main focus, as it were, in the right. foreground, people John. come come and go. There are mm-hmm. especially a focus crew who need to be there for various reasons, who are being sent up the river, because mm-hmm. one of the questions that has to be answered is, how on earth is this possible, or indeed off the yeah. earth? It bespeaks of tremendous scientific and technological prowess, on behalf Mm. of the people who did this. And, of course, the first thing that happens to people is when they're resurrected on the banks of this great river, all in one immense hallelujah shout, basically, you can imagine what the religious people amongst these and even the atheists and agnostics, agnostics of whom Philippe Jose Farmer is one, um, you can imagine the psychic shock to them because Mm. it's... Something like what they think some of them think about as heaven, but it's also very much not, and they're all naked, which is oh, well. an aspect of hell for many people. imagine the people mm. from the Victorian era suddenly we all nude, interesting, of course they do end up with clothing, but to start with, this is just massive shock. What else will you oh. find in this book? uh you will find a lot of sex because Philip Jose farmer is well he's into that, but he's into the descriptions <laughs> of that, and he's Stories often feature that, but, sure. you know, there's a lot of room for that sort of thing. But they can't have children.
0: Oh, okay. Another ah, caveat. Interesting. Another
1: caveat. And these things make, make all sorts of a difference. Uh, there's a lot of talk about religion in this. Obviously the, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the different uh, people in, in the civilizations from each era have different thoughts about that. Yep. There's a lot about metaphysics in this too. The, the, I bet. Churned up. Yeah. There is a religion that gets spawned upon the, the great mm-hmm. river. Uh, Farmer is very interested in humans as aspirational candidates to better themselves throughout adventure and experience. For mm-hmm. example, uh, Hermann Goering becomes very much different to what he was like in his horrible, horrific life back on Earth in right. World War One and World War II as a Nazi. Okay. So
0: opportunities for redemption,
1: maybe. 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 <laughs> He throws together as many interesting characters from history as possible in exceptional circumstances. Gosh. But he often has a main character and he has two of them here with the with his own initials, the author's initials, PJF, who is something <laughs> of there's something of an unblemished but also idealized substitute for the author. Mm-hmm. One odd quirk which I found endearing, he often converts imperial measurements into precise metric ones. So if he tells you that something is at a distance or a height, he'll say, oh, it's 354 metres tall.
0: Oh, thank you. Thinking of us on the metric system.
1: Yeah, I kind of like that. His characters often work things out on the printed page and offer alternatives and suppositions as they question others and themselves. Mm -hmm. The action is full on and well described. Getting there is half the fun. It takes a while to get there because that river does meander, and when Sam Clemens commissions a giant riverboat, as you would expect of Mark Twain, to travel <laughs> along that river, he has a hell of a time with that. There's an entire book about that and more. Okay. There's lots of procedural how to do things. Farmer's um, father was a power plant civil engineer, mm-hmm. so he knows how things work. And he worked in a steel mill himself at one stage, as well as being a technical writer back in the, uh, the 50s. So... These are excellent books. Uh, they're wonderful to sink your teeth into. It is the really the most incredible pastiche you've ever read. And, you know, and I include League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and, and yeah. uh, Newman's Anno Dracula and so on. Uh, there was a computer game released in nineteen ninety eight. Uh, not played it. There are there was a, a feature length pilot episode by the Sci Fi Channel back in two thousand and three. I've seen mm-hmm. it.
0: It's rubbish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, you've got to be able to pull this off well.
1: But that was just the pilot. It did have Kevin Smith from um, Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess in it briefly. Oh, Kevin Sorbo? No, Kevin Smith. This is the guy who played Ares. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they rebooted it in 2010 as a kind of a mini series. haven't been Mm -hmm. able to get my hands on that, unfortunately. Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it is Philip Jose Farmer's Riverworld. There's four main books uh, and other short stories scattered around. It mm-hmm. is an amazing, swashbuckling, philosophical, sexual, religious, metaphysical romp. <laughs>
0: through, Sounds it.
1: Through time, the easy way, by having everybody fr- throughout time resurrected on the banks of the Great River on another world. Wow. <laughs> And and I started rereading it during a self-imposed lockdown as Uh as a tonic to myself. You know how they say, Uh oh, in lockdown, we can't talk to our friends. They're never much farther away than my library. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, that's about it for Zero G today. Uh Great books here. There are Kindle versions nice of the river world books because they are out from you know about Hefty. a couple of decades ago so mm-hmm. you, can, you can pick them up there and you might not be able to go to a bookshop or find them in a bookshop now
0: yeah ebooks are great in this day and age to be honest yeah so, yeah. yeah actually you know the lo- lovely thing about ebooks
1: you just roll through them and you just, yeah. you don't yeah. even know you've finished the first one in the series you just keep going <laughs> it, it's binge watching for for books all right, so the track we'll go out with is Riverboat, and this is live because there is a fabulous Riverboat in the Riverworld series. It's by Alan Toussaint, an American musician, songwriter, and producer, uh, big in the 1950s in New Orleans, Rhythm, rhythm, and, blue, uh, mm-hmm. sorry, rhythm and Blues, and uh, this is his song from the 2015 New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, Riverboat Live. That's it for Zero-G for today. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, and Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast, Triple R Zero-G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero-G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.